So church, as we continue to worship, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word. And in a rather exceptional way, we're going to be looking at a variety of passages. Our normal ebb and flow practice here at Dawson is to situate in one place in Scripture, to walk through those verses as we walk through books of the Bible sections of Scripture together. Today, we're going to be in a variety of passages. You can turn to John chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be in other passages, and you'll see those on the screen, and I invite you to turn with me. We are in a series entitled, To Be Found Faithful as God's People. When you walked into the sanctuary, your eyes are drawn to the baptistry behind me, the cross that adorns it, the vision statement of our church that is above it, to be found faithful as God's people. How do we define faithfulness? How do we measure faithfulness? What unites us around this theme of faithfulness? Well, so over the course of these five weeks that we're asking and prayerfully very clear, clearly answering that question two weeks ago, to be found faithful as God's people, we were reminded that God's word is our authority as a church. Last week, we were reminded that prayer is our priority as followers of Christ that call Dawson home. And this week, we want to engage under this theme that our worship is our response What does it mean to be found faithful as God's people? Worship is our response. Know that worship is non-negotiable. Worship is a part of the very fabric of every person that breathes. Worship is not a choice. It's a reality. Years ago, David Foster Wallace, a famous essayist, author, He stood before the graduating class of Kenyon College and he delivered what has become one of the most famous commencement addresses that's ever delivered. And out of all the things that he could have said to hundreds of college graduates, he talked about this very theme. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what, and I would add, who to worship. Worship is non-negotiable. The question isn't, are you worshiping? The question is, who and what is the object of your worship? That's the choice that each of us have this morning. Who are we worshiping? What are we worshiping? And there are a lot of siren songs that are, are pleading for our attention There's no doubt that we are tempted to to worship the gifts of God more than the very giver himself. So you have the opportunity to give your heart's affection and mind's attention first and foremost to your family, or first and foremost to your work, or first and foremost to your hobbies, or even yourself. You know, you are one of the primary obstacles to the very worship of God is the adoration and adulation of myself. And so often we worship us, me, myself, and I, or we worship our hobbies or our sporting teams or our pleasure or our success. And we could go down this long list, but as Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Who and what we worship we become. Another way to say that is our deities form our identity. 
that our deities form our identity. So the question isn't this morning, are you worshiping? The question is, who or what is the object of your worship? And what the Bible tells us is that there is only one who is worthy of your worship. And that is the one who is revealed to us from Genesis to Revelation, God the Father, Son, Spirit, three in one, one in three, that who he is and what he has done has supremely captured our hearts as followers of him. And while we're tempted to give our hearts affection, our minds attention to many good things, there's only one who is worthy of your worship and praise. In Exodus chapter 15, we read, Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who he is demands our worship. But what he has done also demands our worship. And Paul's writing to the church at Rome. He comes to the 12th chapter, the first verse, and he writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Who God is in his character and essence and what he has done, shorthand, what Paul says here in Romans 12, are the mercies of God. For 11 chapters, Paul goes into great detail how we, like the old Adam, are dead in our sins, but the good news of the gospel is the new Adam who lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death. And the hope of the gospel is, is when we, by faith, trust him, we're captured by his goodness and his grace that holds us and secures us, seals us. This is what he has done for us and what he is doing for us. So who he is And what he has done and what he is doing, it demands our heart's affection and mind's attention. Who are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? This morning, I want us to think how distinctly we, as the body of Christ that called Dawson home, gather together to worship him. I want us to think of three ways primarily that that we can think of this theme of congregational corporate worship under the headings of the priority of worship, the heart of worship, and finally the expressions of worship. Think with me this morning about the priority of our congregational worship. As you know, all that we do as followers of Christ are to be a holy, pleasing fragrance and act of worship to him. Paul would write to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whether in word or deed, do it all to the glory of God. So when you go to work and you work with excellence and integrity, it is an act of worship. Raising your kids is an act of worship. You, by yourself, with what you think and how you live when no one's watching the very integrity, the fabric of who you are, this is an act of worship. And of course, there is a sense in which all of our life is an offering unto the Lord, but there is something specifically that we are called as followers of Christ to do, and we're doing it this morning. In our family devotions, we, as the Eldridge household, are walking through the book of Hebrews. We've been doing this for months now. Just take a few verses at a time this last week. We came to this passage that actually talks about the priority of what we are doing this very morning in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another. I just encourage you, when you're reading the New Testament, when you see that phrase, one another, just circle it. 
circle it and just see how many times you're going to see this phrase stir up Again, one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging, again, that phrase, one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the practice of the Christian church for 2,000 years is to set aside one day, the day of Sunday, the Lord's day, the day of the resurrection, to be able to, to stop work, to be able to stop our hobbies, to be able to cease even from relaxation, to gather together to set our heart's affection, our mind's attention upon who he is and what he has done. And we do that by praying together. We do that by singing together. We do that through uh, giving ourselves to the Lord's Supper and to baptism and to the family dedications. There's a, a beautiful expression of worship that we experience each and every Sunday. But what we're doing as we gather together, it's not a elective for the super spiritual. But it is the very ebb and flow of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Of course there are exceptions to this. Of course there are times where people would want to gather together, but are sick or traveling, injury. We we have a whole list of things that could prevent someone from actually gathering with their local church family. And for that, we're grateful to live in a day and age where even right now there there are people that would long to be able to be with their church family, worshiping together, but are not able. Many of you know that phrase, providentially hindered from coming. That's a good phrase here. They want to be, but they can't be. But there is something that cannot be replicated on television nor through a live stream, and that is the one another aspect of shoulder to shoulder, but preacher. Hundreds of times I've had someone say something to the extent of, but preacher, I can be on my deer stand on Sunday morning at nine o'clock and I can pray to God, read scripture, and that's just as much worship as sitting in a pew. But preacher, 1030, I can be out at the lake, fishing pole in hand, worshiping the Lord, seeing the beauty of creation, and that's just as good as sitting in a pew. But preacher, me on my back porch with my favorite podcast preacher, my favorite Spotify playlist of worship music, that's, that's a whole lot better because it's, it's right to my taste. It's exactly what, what I want right there. But preacher, that's just as good. And I just want to remind you of what we give up when we make worship, not about one another, but just about us, me, myself, and I. The, the actual word for church It's not a special heavenly word that was dropped down into the Greek language 2,000 years ago. It was a word that was floating around long before Jesus was on the earth, long before his crucifixion and resurrection. The word is just ekklesia. And you know what that word meant? It meant a political assembly. It meant people going to the square to be together. So the actual word church in its actual semantics, the meaning is people together. So the church is the people gathered together. It's at the heart of who we are. It's not an option. Just like it's not an option for a healthy, thriving family to gather together. 
Yes, there are times where a family wants to be together, but for a variety of reasons they can't be together. But a part of a family is to celebrate together. So if someone said, hey, I'm, I, I love my family, but we don't celebrate birthdays together. We don't celebrate anniversaries together. We don't get together for Thanksgiving. We don't get together for Christmas. I haven't seen my family in 25 years, immediate family. or You know, if, if that was to be said, you would want to say, well, I, that might be less than ideal of a way to actually be a family. Of course, there are a lot of extenuating circumstances, but you get the point of what I am saying. We are the family of God, so we must be together. This is how we pray for one another. This is how we love one another. This is how we serve one another and support one another. So there is a priority of congregational worship. Can you be a Christian and never step foot in the church? Well, of course you can. The thief on the cross never went to discipleship training. The thief on the cross never sat through a Sunday school training program. The thief on the cross, we, we, but, but the thief on the cross is not the exemplar. He's the exception. So praise God that we can gather together as the people of God And as healthy Christians, we gather together for worship because we're called to. But more than that, we want to. Feeds us. Encourages us. So there's a priority of congregational worship. The heart of congregational worship, I want you to see. To see that, I need you to look at John chapter 4. Do you remember the story? High noon. The Samaritan woman comes to Jesus looking for physical water. Jesus has a conversation with her about living water that never runs out. In the midst of that conversation, uh, Jesus, he peers into her. He, He knows that behind her there's disappointment, five broken marriages. The person she calls her husband it's her boyfriend, live-in boyfriend. So Jesus is, he, he is, he is moved now from just conversation to stepping on toes. And she, she doesn't want anything to do with the conversation. So she wants to have a, a theological chase a rabbit kind of conversation. Hey, I'm a Samaritan. You as an Israelite worship in Jerusalem. Hey, we want to worship at Mount Gerizim. This is a debate. Which one's more important? And it's in that context that Jesus utters these words, but the hour is coming as now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship. Notice the phrase, in spirit and truth. What does this mean? Well, take first that phrase or that word spirit. 2,000 years, the Christian church has seen that as the Spirit of God, capital S, no doubt. The Spirit of God calls us to Him. The Spirit of God convicts us of sin. The Spirit of God infuses our worship and awakens us to an understanding of the beauty and the splendor and the power of who God is. We worship Him through His Spirit, capital S, but we also worship in the Spirit, not the Spirit of God, but we are affectionate, emotional. We're not just walking heads that are just minds, but when we come to God in worship, we come to him with our heart, our affection, with our spirit. But it's not just emotionalism, it's spirit and truth. 
So all of our worship is to be tethered to the truth of God's word, is to be rooted in how God has revealed himself to us. Our worship is not first and foremost just an emotional experience to give us, uh, to make us feel good about ourselves, to make us uh, shiny, happy Jesus people who leave worship as if we've gotten a pat on the back. That No, no, no. That might be the goal of a concert, but gathered corporate worship is grounded in the scripture and the songs that we sing are doctrinally grounded. The preaching of God's word must, must be rooted in the word of God. What we pray and how we gather all of this is just not up to us in this moment, but it is to be in this conversation with the spirit of God and the word of God that is propelling us forward here. So it's not spirit or truth. It's not head or heart. It's spirit and truth. It's head and heart. One way that you can track some of the movements of the Christian church over the centuries is to, be see, is to see that in, in the car ride of the Christian church, oftentimes we'll go to one side or the other. There are times where the Christian church will emphasize spirit to the diminishment, diminishment of truth. There are times where we will exalt truth to the diminishment of spirit and affections and emotion. But we need both. We need both. John Piper, the retired pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, he said it beautifully when he said that truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections, whether those are expressed outwardly or inwardly, does not matter. But strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. Church, I want you to see the priority of congregational worship. I want us to think about the spirit of congregational worship. And I also want us to the heart of congregational worship. And finally, I want us to see the expressions of congregational worship. Now, we could go through a whole litany of things that we do on Sunday here at Dawson. We could spend a whole message, and it's rightly appropriate to talk about the Lord's Supper as an act of worship, and rightly appropriate just to talk about baptism as an act of worship, and it's rightly appropriate to talk for 30 minutes about the very teaching and preaching of God's Word. It's rightly appropriate for us just to spend time talking about the prayers, the prayers of confession and the prayers of pardon, the benediction that sends us out. All of those are appropriate topics. I want us in our remaining time just to think about the variety of expression around what, what at times can be the most confusing aspect of worship, which is the singing, the musicality of worship. It can at times be divisive. And I want us to see the beautiful way that God has given us the opportunity to see the diversity that unites us as the people of God. We have tried to describe what you've experienced this morning. The beauty of the choir. The beauty of the orchestra. Prayers that we've prayed. Baptisms in our earlier services and family dedications. And even the preaching of the word of God. We've tried to encapsulate that in our theological vision. And you see it on the screen. There's our commitment to proclaim the gospel through active participation. 
and historically rich, culturally relevant, and biblically diverse expressions of worship and prayer to the glory of God. We want to give us words that we can hang on to that describes what unites us here at Dawson. As we sing together and we pray together and we serve one another as the Dawson family of faith. Now you say, well, David, where in the world, I mean, beautifully, biblically, diverse expressions of worship, where, where biblically is that? Well, again, it's tethered to the word of God. Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I love this passage. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving, uh, thankfulness in your hearts to God. That first phrase, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, it could be paraphrased, is let, let Christ have ample room in you to overflow. Let the spirit of God overflow in you. Well, Paul, how is that a reality? Well, look back at the command. The command in this passage is by teaching and admonishing one another through small group Bible studies. No, through, through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That there's something beautiful about the soundtrack of Christian faith, the beautiful diversity of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that what Paul is saying is that our singing together in worship, it actually results in the rich indwelling of God's word in God's people, uniting them together. So this means that worship, first and foremost, for me and for you, is not just me talking to God. That worship first and foremost is not me having an experience individually with God. That congregational worship, that the operative pronouns are not me, myself, and I, but rather us and we. Again, going back to that theme of one another. And then when we worship together, it strengthens us. It uplifts us. That we can't be who Christ desires for us to be without hearing the person next to us and the person behind us and before us as we unite around the beautiful diversity of the body of Christ singing together, praying together, hearing the word taught together. I mean, you've had this experience. You've had those times in your life where you did not have the words to adequately talk to God. Maybe there were times of difficulty in your life where you've walked into a worship service and in that moment there was doubt and disbelief that was haunting you. Maybe there was discouragement that, that followed you into the worship service. Maybe there were times where you just say, you know something, despair is really who I am and where I am right now. And I don't want to be here. I've had that experience. I remember the Sunday after Katrina. I was a pastor on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. We lost our home and 95% of our church members lost many, if not most of their possessions, many of them lost their whole livelihood, decades of memories washed away in the Gulf. Came back to the church and we began to try to make plans for the Sunday after Katrina to worship. 
our sanctuary had about five feet of water in it, which all these pews in this eerie kind of way were piled on top of each other. It's a sanctuary that held 500 people. On high attendance Sunday, we might have 55 people that came together. So we knew that wasn't going to be the place for us to worship. We began to clean out the fellowship hall. Concrete floor, began to make plans, got some folded chairs and set them up. And I was absolutely overwhelmed by questions. Where are we going to live? I looked at my wife, Danielle, who was seven months pregnant with our oldest son, Hayden. Where are we going to bring him back to? Will it be a FEMA trailer? Will it be a friend's house? Remember that first Sunday walking in and there was a spirit of just questions. I was exhausted physically, emotionally, as everyone else in that congregation was. And to be honest, I didn't have the words to give them comfort. I didn't feel it. Until we sang. 33 people strong. Craig Edwards, our part-time minister of music, brought a battery-powered keyboard. And I am assured that a connoisseur of choral music would not have been impressed with the sounds that came out of that fellowship hall. But Donald and Jan Avery, who had lived in the same house for 60 years, were sitting right in front of me. And they had come back to a house that was nothing but a foundation. And with tears in their eyes, they sang, Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Can't say that about our house. We can't say that about our possessions, but we can say that about our God. And it was in that moment to sing those words, words that I had sung literally hundreds of times before, but to look to my left and to see Bill and Helen Jackson, Bill who was a barber in the same barber shop for 50 years, to have five feet of water in it, his whole livelihood washed into the Gulf of Mexico, and to be able to see with tears in his eyes, him singing to God, great is thy faithfulness. There is no shadow of turning with thee. I felt a lot of shadows. I felt a lot of turning. I felt a lot of changing. I felt a lot of uncertainty. But it was the one another of that experience, shoulder to shoulder. There are a lot of powerful worship experiences that you can experience in your vehicle. Yes, there are a lot of powerful worship experiences that you can experience in nature. Yes, there are powerful worship services that you can experience on your back porch. Yes, but there is nothing, nothing like the strength of the body of Christ in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of challenge, in the midst of uncertainty, coming together and joining in song with one another. And the songs, I'm not sure, matter all that much. It's the God that we're singing to who's revealed himself to us. 
I mean, Paul talks about this. In Colossians chapter 3, they're going to sing psalms and they're going to sing hymns and they're going to sing spiritual songs all tethered to the word of God. What does this even mean? Well, psalms, I mean, we know this. I mean, it's 150 psalms, the prayer book, the hymn book of the Israelites. We've got that. Hymns, we sort of can understand that. It's hard to figure out exactly what Paul is talking about. But about 70 and 80 and 90 AD, of course, there's already some type of of hymnology, some type of songs that are being written and passed down throughout the churches. And so it very well may be that there's some shared songs in that Greco-Roman world. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. We know it is the kenosis hymn, but it seems as if that was an early Christian hymn that Paul's drawing upon when he's writing to the church at Philippi. Spiritual songs, the last that he designates here, that's a little bit hard to pin down. There's some that say that's just spontaneous utterances made up in the moment to God. Maybe that's the case. Other scholars looking at this passage say those were just new songs that were local to a congregation. So you got hymns and psalms and new contemporary music 2,000 years ago that the people of God in unity were able to see the beautiful diversity of styles and types. I just want you to know that the melody of the church, that the soundtrack of the church has always been a diversity of music. It's always been the psalms and hymns and and new songs. Now, do I have preferences of what my favorite is? Do you have preferences? Well, of course you do. Of course I do. There's, there, there's songs that we sing here at Dawson that bring me back to some of the most significant moments of my spiritual life. And when John leads us beautifully and our choir leads us beautifully and the orchestra leads us beautifully and the band leads us beautifully, it's in that moment I am saying amen in a way that is so deeply personal. And so, of course, there, the music captures deep parts of us. And, of course, you're going to have preferences and I have preferences. This is natural. This is normal. But as the family of God who called Dawson home, preference doesn't get the final word. Because we are a family who sings together and worships together, deference gets the last word, not preference. You see, we have to be reminded that we are the people of God joining together. They come from different backgrounds, different ages, different experiences. And as we gather together, there is something that is so richly beautiful. I hope you know this. That is so exceptional to see a seven-year-old and a 77-year-old in the same service, singing the same song, praying together, shoulder to shoulder. Or a 17-year-old and an 87-year-old person in the same service singing to God. Preference can't get the last word there. There must be deference to say in that moment, I I put aside my preference to be able to join my voice to, to the song 
that there's a beautiful, unifying factor that we get to gather together and worship him. You know this, church. I just remind you that God has been and he uh, will be glorified in a variety of musical preferences and a variety of culturally shaped styles. And we can think about how God throughout the ages has been been magnified and and worshipped in the best of Gregorian chants. And how God has been magnified and worshipped in the best of a cappella singing together. Or God has been glorified in high church, traditional, hymn-only, led worship. And how God has been glorified through southern gospel, heavenly highway hymnals, passing it out, tapping your foot right there. Or or the, the hippie around the campfire, in 1970, they're singing Kumbaya, my Lord. Even the rock band who leads powerfully in spirit and truth. I don't know exactly what the styles of worship are going to be like in heaven because the Bible isn't concerned primarily with the what and how of eternal worship ahead. But it is supremely concerned with the who of worship. Let us pray. 